Never in the history of Ocumwell Come Emmanuel has there been that much groove. I loved it. Well done, guys. Thank you for leading us. Praise the Lord. Let's, uh, and, and I'm just going to bring it down here. So before I do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can take this time, both this morning and this evening, to reflect on, be moved and hopefully changed by, and give you praise for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was God, counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That he would take on human form and be found in appearance as a man. And that he would humble himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God, that you in return would elevate him not just from the grave, but that you would give him a name above every name, that at the very name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, I pray that you would bow our knees, humble our hearts, And Lord, that the good news that you are God with us would would permeate our hearts and change our minds. And that by your kindness, we would be led to repentance. It's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. You know, the merriment of our culture, the festivities, the, the, the music, all, all of it, often overshadows a very important aspect of Christmas. And that aspect is this, is that the, the message of the arrival of Christ in Bethlehem is so It's so much more than the merriment. And within the exciting angelic proclamations, the arrival of Christ tells us, among other things, that the light of God enters darkness. The light of God enters darkness. And perhaps this morning, that's the message you need to hear. That the light of God, the light of the world, shines into darkness. And while there is joy to the world, there's also much sorrow and darkness. And the sorrow and darkness is not just a global thing, but is often felt at very acute personal levels. Do you feel less than Mary this morning? Do you feel undeserving? Do you feel cast off? 
Do you feel like you're out of options for hope? Do you feel as though you've, through your circumstances, your choices, that you have put yourself outside of the reach of God? Maybe you feel this way this morning. Maybe these questions bring to your heart deep concern for a loved one. And whether this word has has already touched a chord within your life this morning or has called to mind someone else who feels undeserving, who seems to be outside the reach of the Lord, I have a really good word for you this morning. Emmanuel. Isn't that a great word? Emmanuel. God with us. Emmanuel is this name and picture of God, stands true as a promise to his people. All month, we've been talking about God with us through the Old Testament. We started that God was with his people before they were his people. As he approached Moses and said, I hear their cry. I see their oppression. I know what is being done to them. I know it's going to take a mighty hand to get them out of it. So I'm giving my mighty hand to get them out of it. We talked about God with his people in the desert as he gave them the tabernacle so they could have forgiveness of their sins, so they could mediate with the Lord. Last week, Pastor Austin wonderfully and insightfully walked us through God with us with the temple, that this stands to God's people, this stands to the nations, to know that there is a God of Israel and he is with his people. I want to read a portion, the closing portion, of Solomon's prayer of dedication. Now think, imagine, you've just created the greatest worship space of all time blows the crystal cathedral out of the water or any, any other, even, not even the Notre Dame, before it was burned down, could, could rival it. Completely lined with gold on the inside. And here it is. This is the closing of his prayer. Think of how you would close the prayer of dedication for such a glorious and important worship space. He says, if they, your people Israel, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so that they're carried off away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their hearts in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned, we have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward this land which you gave their fathers and the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built in your name, then hear In heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive. 
This is Solomon's prayer. He's just built the greatest worship space of all time. And in the prayer of dedication of this this temple that changes things for Israel, he goes, and God, if they sin, you know, we all do, and if they get carried off to the land of their captors, you catch how often he talked about the land of the captors and the land of the captivity? God, if they do this, and it was really more of God when this happens. Even looking at the temple, Solomon, the wise guy, closes his prayer with this reality. And sure enough, it came true. And God's people were carried off into captivity after generations of idolatry and injustice. And they're carried off to foreign lands, lands that were not their own, to serve kings that were not their own, to live in places that were not their own, live in places that God had not promised them. The reality of this prayer of Solomon's came true, and God's people were carried off. And in keeping with the, this year's tradition of very common and typical Christmas passages, we're in Ezekiel this morning. And Ezekiel is the prophet to the people in captivity. And in Ezekiel 33, a fugitive escapes from Jerusalem and he gets to God's people. He gets to Ezekiel and the people Ezekiel is serving. And this is his status report from Jerusalem. It's all gone. It's been raised. The land is decimated. The temple has been torn to the ground. I imagine that for those who were carried off into exile, did so with heaps of guilt and shame. We've sinned greatly against God. The prophets that no one was listening to was telling us this would happen all along. We refused to repent, and here we are. We're taken from our homes. We've lost loved ones. And they left. And as they were leaving, they saw the temple. It might have been one of the lasting sights as they were leaving. And maybe in their heart they thought, maybe I'll be back one day. Maybe not. And that day, in Ezekiel 33, the fugitive comes, he's escaped, and he goes, guys, it's gone. That temple you were longing for, that thing that, 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 that felt like it would never move, is gone. Imagine what little bit of, they had of hope was evaporated at that time. The people in exile have every right to feel helpless. What hope was there for redemption? How can God be with them? Not only are they away from the land, but now the temple is destroyed. So let me ask again. Do you feel now or have you ever felt as though you're out of the reach of God? Do you carry a self-imposed sentence of helplessness and hopelessness, either because a mistake that was recent or years ago or a years-long pattern of sin? It's sad. 
and it is all too common that God's people would feel that because of their sin, that they're and, and, the, and the consequence and the isolation that sin brings, that they feel that they are somehow disqualified from the omnipresent, grace-lavishing God of heaven. And the passage we're going to read here in just a minute tells you that you are not That though you would be in exile, though you would feel cast off, though you would feel all hope is gone, that God loves you very much and Emmanuel, God with us, applies to you in whatever your exile is. Remember, Christmas is about God's light coming to darkness. So I have good news for you. God is with us. God is with us. Let's, if, you, if you would please turn to Ezekiel 37. I know the font of the scripture passage is very large on the screen, so you guys could all see it really well. So you have tremendous eyesight. I always tell people, they're like, tell me about your church. I'm like, they have tremendous eyesight. And then they usually say, that's a weird thing for a pastor to say. And then we move on as though nothing happened. So let's go to Ezekiel 37. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, take a stick and ride on it. For Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Take another stick and ride on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. And all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them together in one hand. Join them one another into, into one stick that they may be in one, in one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what, what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, Israel associated with him. And I will join it to the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in one land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them. And they shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all of all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land which I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. 
It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The Lord is with his people in the most unlikely and undeserving places because the exile is not the end. And I think there's some of us that need to hear that this morning, that the exile is not the end because the Lord overcomes our utter brokenness. Now, Ezekiel is a very peculiar prophet. If you ever think it's weird that God wants you to make disciples of the people around you, read Ezekiel, and you'll feel much better about that assignment. Ezekiel had a unique preaching ministry, to say the least. Under God's guidance, he would do some really crazy stuff. Dig holes in the walls of the city. Lay on his side for way too long. And that's the tip of the iceberg. So, and usually God would use these really kind of like weird and bizarre visual images and demonstrations of Ezekiel to portray his word to the people or open up the ask of what is God saying to us. So Ezekiel comes out and he has two sticks with writing on them and they're in one hand. And all the people thought two things. First, this is refreshingly mild. And second, what is the Lord trying to say to us now. There was a hope to these people that seemed so unattainable, I imagine none of them would dare speak it. No one would verbalize it. You get carried off to the land, and then to think there's these crazy things. Think of just, you're carted off, another military forces you to move to another nation where there's another language spoken, you don't know it, and then imagine thinking, oh, I can't wait to go home and for our nation that's been torn in two for over a century to be united and for people who for generations have been chasing idols to worship God holy. Wouldn't that be great? No one's thinking that. No one except the Lord. The Lord is thinking that. And the Lord actually says it's gonna happen. This is a dream that God's people, even the most faithful, would have let go of. There was too much idolatry, too much historical conflict, too much consequence for God to have any ambition for these people anymore. God has surely given up on them. After all, we think of the image given of God's people right before this. The one passage of Ezekiel that seemingly everyone knows. In a valley, it was just dry bones. Dead, rotted skeletons, all the flesh decomposed off of them. This is the people of God. They were long dead. All they see, all they feel, all they breathe is exile. It's the consequence of their sin. But I know that was a long time ago in a land far, far away. We, people of Des Moines of the year 2023, would never be self-loathing over our sin like this. We would never repeatedly beat ourselves up for mistakes, 
feeling hopeless because of the sin pit we've dug for ourselves. We would have no idea of relating to what they're going through. We need to remember that the valley of dry bones did not remain the valley of dry bones, but God breathes life into those dry bones. They come to life again. They get new flesh. And here, the people may have heard about the dry bones already, but here they're saying that, that dream of being unified as the people of God, living in the right place, doing the right thing, that dream is dead, and God is breathing life on that dream and breathing life into the people, and life will exist where death previously was the only sight. So the Lord says he's going to undo some crazy things. He's going to undo their exile. He's going to bring them back. But not only that, he's going to undo and take away their division. Israel was one nation through the judges, although it was pretty ugly. One nation under King Saul, although he had a pretty significant pride issue. One nation under David, and one nation under Solomon. And then Solomon's son came, took bad advice as though it was good advice, and the nation divided. And not only did it become two nations, but throughout the history of there being two nations, they, they frequently fought against one another. And when they were getting along, it was usually for the wrong things, like idolatry. And God is saying, I'm going to unite you. I'm going to make you back into one stick because you're my people, and my people are going to be one. And the fractions and the, uh, I, I meant to say factions, not fractions. The, the divisions and the warring among God's people that was the consequence of sin in its wake would just be unity of God's people. And they would be back in the land and they would be walking with the Lord. He's going to undo it all. He will bring them back to the land they were convinced they'd never see again. But better than they could have been on their own. And better than they left it. God is not content to return you just to the mess you made but give something better if you would only follow him instead of your own fleshly leadings. And when I think of the full historical biblical context of where this original audience was, you know, in, in captivity, generations of obstinate sin, it's hard for me to imagine being at that level of brokenness and hopelessness. They're in an unlikely place to encounter God they're completely undeserving, but God is with them, sending them a message through Ezekiel, sending them a message of hope, a promise of goodness and faithfulness. This ought to give us confidence, knowing that no matter what level of brokenness we are feeling in our individual lives right now, you are within reach of God Almighty who loves you. You're in reach of his promises. You're in reach of his work. You're in, you're in reach of his grace and his kindness. He's the Lord who overcomes our utter brokenness, and he's the Lord who saves us from us. 
Look at verse 23. They shall not, they're going to get back to the land. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things and with all, any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. If God promised to bring them back to the physical location, but did not address their spiritual condition, he would not be good. He would not be a good God to just bring them back and let them continue on in their idolatry. To let them continue on in their injustice and oppression of the poor. And their neglect of the fatherless and the widow. God is good, though. He doesn't call them to just coexist with him outside of his holiness, of maybe we can all just get along, but instead he calls them to be with him, and he makes them holy so they can be with him. He offers to make them holy, to remove these things. We get this this glimpse in verse 23 and the rest of the passage of what the, the, the lordship of God, the lordship of Christ looks like, the finished work of that looks like. The most persistent problem to God's people up to this point is their insatiable pursuit of being like the nations in all the worst ways. That they would have these like momentary revivals and then the next generation would just go right back and God says, I'm gonna save you from your backslidings of your sin. I'm gonna save you from where you lead yourself. I'm gonna save you from this pattern that you can't break of repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin. And I'm gonna call you into just walking with me and letting me be your king and letting me purify you of this ungodliness that you're just so sick of. I'm gonna do this. Because the people had within themselves, just like all of us, a problem that they couldn't fix. And God says, I'm going to do that work. I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to make you two nations. But I'm not just going to make you two nations. I'm going to unify you around pure hearts. I'm going to unify you under my leadership as your God. I'm going to save you from where you would lead yourself. I don't know about you, but I have proven time and time again that I'm incapable of leading myself. This may be a weird thing for a pastor to say. I am incapable of leading myself. I can't be trusted. I need Jesus to lead me. I need the Lord to lead me. And God is saying, you're going to come back, and I'm going to save you from yourself, and I'm going to do that by I'm going to be the one that leads you. And the text invites us to imagine with feet firmly planted on God's promises and power what life could look like, what this life could look like. Think of this. Think of your life living as someone who does not defile themselves anymore with idols or detestable things or with any transgressions, what would your life look like without backsliding of sin but being God's person and him being your God? That not only could they be removed from captivity, but they could be restored to a pure and faithful walk with God. Imagine 
Imagine what it would look like to walk with the Lord as a sober person. Imagine what it would look like to walk with the Lord with honesty and uprightness. Imagine what it would look like to walk with the Lord without pornography or without anger and the need to control what's going on around you, but letting the Lord be the one who's in control. Imagine what it would look like. Imagine walking with the Lord without getting pulled into the foolishness of worldly divisiveness and political idolatry. Imagine following the Lord with contentment. Without the lack, with, with, with walking with the Lord with just a lack of want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Imagine walking with the Lord without bitterness and contempt and anger. Now ask yourself this question. These questions. I have two questions for you to ask yourself. Do I believe God is powerful enough to do this? And do I believe God is good enough to do this? Do I believe God is powerful enough? Do I believe God is good enough? How does the Lord save us from ourselves? The Lord lovingly and wisely leads us. My servant David shall be king over them. They shall have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules, be careful to obey my statutes. And he goes on. There's going to be one king. David will be prince forever. Now, now God's not going to pull David out of his tomb, but God's going to give an everlasting king on the throne of David. Short answer is he's going to give Jesus. But there's, there's three characteristics that we need to see here about Jesus. First of all, David was a messianic king. He was the anointed king. He was anointed to lead God's people, to conquer their enemies, to firmly establish the kingdom. And to reign over it. To be a king who would lead the people not just politically but in worship. To lead the people in walking with God. He was a shepherd king. A king who tenderly cares for and richly provides. Who makes us lie down by green pastures and leads us by still waters. A king who doesn't run away from death but takes death on on behalf of his people, a king who lays himself down in the valley of the shadow of death. And he's a king who leads, who knows his sheep, and his sheep know him, and they listen to him. There's a feature of obedience going through here that not just that God's people would be with God, but that they would be walking in step with God, that they would be walking in obedience with the Lord. Trusting that the, this king cares more about me and is better able to lead me than anyone else, including me. Do you believe that? That the Lord is better able to lead you than you are able to lead yourself. That he loves you and is more interested in what's good and right for you than you are for yourself. So when we see Scripture 
that steps on our sin. We can read it knowing that while it stings and while it hurts, that it is from the Lord who loves me more than I love myself and is better at leading me than I'm better at leading myself. And trust Him to lead us where we wouldn't know to go otherwise. Namely, paths of righteousness for His name's sake. That He would lead us in those paths of righteousness. Notice in addition to the obedience is that they only have one leader, and that's the third feature, that this this shepherd king on David's throne is forever. Over the long, hard history of God's people, they had had a, a handful of good leaders. The rest were prideful, evil idolaters. And the people of God went the direction of their leader. And here the message is, you have one king, And he's going to be the best king you could ever have. And he's not going away. The people are promised an everlasting king who is good, who's a shepherd. Ezekiel isn't telling them about some David 2.0. He's telling them about the one that David imperfectly pointed to. The very son of God. He lovingly and wisely leads us and the Lord makes and keeps lasting promises. I, verse 26, will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. God promises to return them and to prosper them. God promises to give them his sanctuary forever. Not a temple that can be destroyed by the nations, but something infinitely greater. That he will dwell with them. That the nations will know that he will sanctify them and dwell with them forever. Imagine being in exile, and this is the word you get. And maybe you don't have to try that hard to imagine because maybe you feel like you've been in exile for a while now. Remember, Christmas isn't just the merriment. It's light shining into darkness. And if ever there was a moment where circumstance, past behavior, location led a person to believe that they were cast off from God forever, the book of Ezekiel is that moment. The people in this setting are in that moment. Yet in this moment, God faithfully and with full honesty told them, I will do what you have ceased to dream possible. And in the shadow of the grave, in the valley of the shadow of death, when there's no earthly reason for hope, I will give you a heavenly reason for hope. This is Christmas. The light shines in the darkness. And you remember the rest of the verse? The darkness has not overcome it. The light shines into darkness. That even in exile, God is with his people. Light shining in there. And the darkness does not overcome the light. This is Christmas. That God would bring you into relationship with him. That he would forgive you of your sins. That he would draw you under the lordship of Christ. Forgive you of your sins. Cleanse you of unrighteousness. So that you can be his people. And he can be your God. 
Will you come out of exile? Will you come out of wandering? Will you come out of darkness to the light that shines in? Because God is with us. He is a good God, and he makes sure and everlasting promises. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you do not write us off, that you continually pursue us with covenant faithfulness, with kindness, with mercy, and with grace, that you would lavish these things upon us, that you would pour out this richness so that through us you would, you would reveal even more fully, continually, over and over again, how rich in grace you are. Lord, let us set our hope on you. Lord, hear us as we in our hearts confess our sins to you. And Lord, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the minds to understand this great and glorious light which shines into the darkness and overcomes the darkness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.